Welcome to this episode of Catchy Knowledge, where we want more than just fishing knowledge, we want catchy knowledge. Today we have a second half of an interview with John Rinderer. John is the fishing coach at McKendry University in Illinois. They're one of the best college teams in the nation. They have been to the St. Lawrence River, Kentucky Lake, Lake Texoma, and more. And if you haven't listened to the first half of an interview with John, it's really good. You should definitely go back and listen to it first. So let's pick back up with our interview with John and learn about what's in McKendry's boat. Here we go. Back at it. What kind of stuff does the team at McKendry have in the boat? Like electronics, anything? Maybe you shouldn't say this since Murray State's probably listening or something <laughs> like that. Murray State knows everything that's in our boats. They have the same thing in their boats. Um, there's no big secrets. You know, kids are either running Garmin, they're running Hummingbird, they're running Lowrance. I think at the college level, there's a lot of kids that run Hummingbird. And it's great stuff. And Hummingbird has been incredibly good to our team as well as many others in offering huge discounts to kids in college the last seven, eight years. They provide the kids an opportunity to run great equipment and save money by getting a college discount. Almost all kids now, I shouldn't say all, but the majority are getting the new trolling motors with the spot lock feature. Um, a lot of the kids are getting the new live target, and you actually see the fish live underwater. A lot yeah. of the boats have added those in the last year. They're all running Mercury, Yamaha, whatever, Suzuki, they, whatever they like. It's just like Ford, Chevy, you know, whatever you like, that's what you run by behind your boat. Tackle-wise, there's probably not many lures you could name that aren't in their boats. They're very well equipped. They have huge storage lockers with baits that are organized by depth crankbait, size of plastic, types of hooks, spinner baits, chatter baits, buzz baits, whopper ploppers, jerk baits. They all have they all have tons of tackle in the boat. And you have to because you really don't know any given minute what that fish is gonna want. It, it might be a color change, it might be a action change it might be a size of worm change it might be a loud trap in the grass versus a subtle trap in the grass it might be a trap that runs on a five to one gear ratio reel at one depth at one speed versus another trap that runs much deeper at the same speed there's so many subtle differences to lures which little thing is going to trip that bass's trigger and help you get a limit in the boat and the way you figure it out is you just spend lots of time on the water and get some great natural instincts for how fish react to a bait under various wind conditions, weather conditions, pressure conditions, thermal client position. That's what I love about the sport more than anything. That's where my passion is. Every time I go out, my goal is to fill the boat with bass. And if I don't, the bass won that day. But if I do, I figured it out. And there are so many things to figure out that it's, it's, it's an incredible challenge. Um, you know, people that don't fish and have never had to do it can't really even begin to imagine all the variables that go into a successful day on the water and how those variables can change throughout that day and you have to change or all of a sudden you're not getting bites anymore and there's a lot of anglers that aren't versatile so they just keep doing what they were doing even though what they were doing doesn't work anymore. What do you do if you're fishing a pressured lake? Fish do get conditioned to certain things, and you have to do something different than everybody else. Or you have to be more finesse than everybody else. 
you have to look for ways to get a fish to react that other guys aren't going to figure out, or you have to find that population of fish that somebody else hasn't found yet. In a lake like that, that just gets pressured over and over and over, it's really hard to find that population of fish that somebody else hasn't found yet. And lakes go through cycles. You know, if that lake's getting pounded, it may start to deteriorate and not be the lake that it was five or 10 years ago. And as pressure backs off and people start going to other places, gradually that lake will rebuild itself and it can be a great lake again sometime. But that you see that happen in lakes all over the country. They go through cycles. Whether they have a good spawn or not for two or three years makes a huge difference in the population. Yeah. I figured out the fishing out lake will usually eat a few rig the Ocho, Dinger, Senko style bait, weightless with a mm-hmm. extra wide gap worm hook. They'll usually mm-hmm. re- react to that. But it's different every day. Some some days I'll pop it a couple times and I'll eat it. Sometimes mm-hmm. the fish are so finesse, I'll only get bites when I just crank it so slow. That makes sense. That makes good sense. What other baits do you throw at them? Recently, I've been getting up at like 5.30 or so, trying to get the early bite at sunrise on buzzbait or waking or buzzing spinnerbait or something. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you another little technique this time of year that's coming up right now that can be very productive and a lot of people don't do it is just a nice small two and a half or three inch popper and and just work a popper nice and slow and instead of a buzz bait or a whopper plop or a frog just take a little buck-tailed feather-tailed popper like a pop r or a zell pop or an excalibur pop or anybody's little popper and just work it out there learn to walk it and be really subtle. Sometimes it's just a little half-hitch twitch. And maybe it's, you know, a couple of good twitches and then a pause. And then just a little short half-twitch. And uh, a lot of big bass will come up and crash that popper. Huh. And also, I don't know what buzzbait you're throwing, but a lot of times in the fall, if you'll downsize that buzzbait to a little eighth-ounce buzzbait and, and go with a little eighth-ounce buzzbait, sometimes that can be a killer in the fall. I've been mainly doing the, um, like, I don't know what size it is. I just found it somewhere. I don't Uh know if it's one four for three eighths. A little eighth ounce buzzbait. We've won a lot of tournaments on those in the fall. You know, a lot of times the guys will come through with a frog or a a bigger buzzbait and and, uh, not get bit, and you come through with this little tiny buzzbait behind them and catch fish. And another thing that's really good, too, is like a a horny toad or a, a, a solid rubber frog with a little paddle tail, so a ribbit frog or a horny toad. A horny toad is made by zoom and it's really subtle yeah and uh that makes a really good bait in the fall what kind of rod do you use on those one eighth ounce buzz baits like a finesse spinning rod or what no i i use a little bait cast rod a little medium little medium action bait cast rod about a seven foot most of mine are seven foot i just use those all my life and i'm comfortable with a seven foot rod when the fish are being um choosy how does your team at McKendree know how often to change baits? Well, everybody's different. Like I said earlier, some guys don't change baits near often enough. You'll find even in the adult fishing league that some guys have a great confidence level in certain lures and they'll continually go back to their confidence bait, even when it's not working. So my anglers vary. I may go 15 or 20 minutes without a bite and I think it's time to change. I'll often change every 
15 minutes if I'm not getting bit. If I know there's fish around and I know they should be biting, I won't throw the same thing for more than 15 minutes. I'll switch. Usually I'll try a different technique first. And sometimes if I've already been getting bit, I might change to a different color or a little different action. But the guys on my team are still learning that skill and I'm still learning that skill even after 50 some years of fishing. But if you're not getting bit, you need to change until you find something that does work because you can usually catch fish if you get in the right spot and get the right bait. You know, a lot of times it's a size deal or a color deal or a, a vibration type thing it can make all the difference in the world. And the water column, those fish are going to locate somewhere in that water column from the bottom to the very top. If you haven't tried several different layers of that water column, if you've only bottom bumped the whole time, a jig, a shaky head, a beaver, and you're not getting bit, maybe they're not on the bottom. Maybe you need to get off the bottom. Maybe you need a Carolina rig or a drop shot or something that gets it up off the bottom. And then if that's not the deal, maybe they don't want something slow. Maybe it's a reaction bite. So then you try your chatterbait, your spinnerbait, your crankbait, and you try some reaction lures. And then you try the top. And maybe they don't want to come all the way to the top, but they want to come almost to the top. They won't hit the whopper plopper. They won't hit the buzz bait, but they'll come up and they'll act like they kind of will. Then maybe you want to go to a, a little subsurface shallow running crankbait or a fluke or something that's just below the surface and work that area. But until you've tried every level in the water column, you don't give up because they're somewhere and they're going to bite. And that's your job to figure it out. And that's what makes it so, so aggravating and fun. We'll never fully understand the nature of bass, I guess. No, we won't. We never will. We'll always be learning more and more and more. And the more we learn, the harder we are on the fish and the more they react and become harder to catch. Yeah. Do you have any favorite fishing stories or experiences? Well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> In 53 years of fishing, I have enough fishing stories to last for two or three days. And, and my wife always tells me when I tell some of my better stories, she always says, D don't tell that because they're not going to believe it. But there are just so many things that happen while you're out on the water. And GoPros weren't invented when I was young. I just wish I had a GoPro in my boat my whole life because I could make a movie that would sell. I could write a book that would sell if I ever sat down and just put these stories on paper. I have tons of stories and I'll share one with you because it was incredible and I still can't believe it even happened. But one particular day I was very young and I was teaching school. I was probably my second year of teaching and the guy down the hall taught chemistry was about my age and it was winter time and the forecast was for a heavy snow on a Tuesday. And this was before cell phones, and this was before all these fancy boats. This was back in 1982. And the weatherman said snow, so I, I called the chemistry teacher and said, hey, if it snows tonight, would you like to go fishing with me tomorrow at the power plant lake? Because when it snows, the pressure drops, they bite like crazy. So he said, sure. So we got a call at 4 a.m. that school was canceled. I turned on the TV, and the forecast was for 12 inches of snow. And it was calling for thunder snow. And I don't know if you know what thunder snow is or not, but in my life twice, I've seen this. It's winter, it's cold, there's lightning and thunder, but instead of rain, it's snow. And when there's a thunder snow, 
it dumps. It just opens up and the sky dumps snow. So we headed to the lake and we got there and there's no boat ramp at this lake. It's a big lake. It's a power plant lake. And at that time, there was no boat ramp. You had to slide your boat down the hill. And all we had was a little two-man bass buggy style boat. Those little short ones that you can carry in the bed of your pickup truck. So we slid it down the bank. We had a little Shakespeare Wonder Troll trolling motor. And we set out to fish at daylight. And we fished and we fished and we fished and we caught so many fish. And we got as far as we could get from the truck. And it was time to turn around to make it back by dark. And all of a sudden, the trolling motor just made a humming sound. And I didn't know what was wrong, but I tipped it up out of the water and looked, and there was no propeller on the trolling motor. Oh, no. And we're a long ways from the truck, and, we're, and there are no houses on this lake. And the snow is very deep, and I can't walk on water, so I knew I would have to walk miles and miles and miles through a dark woods that I don't even know where I'm at in deep snow to get back to the truck. So I'm thinking, wow. I've got to build a fire. We're, we're in trouble. We're in, a, we're in a bad way because we didn't have a paddle. So I took the lid off of the battery box, which is a little plastic lid. And I used that to paddle the boat to the shore. And I was trying to figure out if I could get my old lighter to light enough. Everything was in the snow. I didn't know how I was going to build a fire, but I thought I had to. In the meantime, the chemistry teacher says, I'll make us a propeller. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy is an idiot. How are you going to manufacture a propeller in the middle of the woods in a snowstorm? And I'm over there looking for some way to start a fire thinking, this guy I brought with me is a nut. So he goes out in the woods and roots around and comes back with a limb off of an oak tree about as big around as my forearm and about four feet long. And little did I know, he loves knives. And he had three with him. One great big knife in his boot, one on his belt, and one in his pocket. I've nicknamed him Knife Man since then. And he took that big knife and he starts hacking on his limb. And I'm sitting over there thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking I am with a crazy lunatic. He can't make a propeller. And he just keeps hacking. And in about 15 minutes, that big limb is now about the length of a propeller. And the bark's all gone. And he's got another knife out that's really sharp. And he's whittling away like a beaver. And I'm looking at this thing thinking, oh, my gosh, I think he's going to make a propeller. <laughs> so he keeps carving. And about 45 minutes, he's got something that really looks like a propeller with two blades with pitch, different angled pitch. So I'm starting to thinking now, maybe we can make this work. And I go look at the motor. And the motor had a shaft that came out of it with a hole through the shaft and the old propeller had a hole through it. So you slid it on and then a pin went through the propeller, through the shaft, through the propeller and then folded over. So I'm thinking, how can we make this wooden prop work on this trolling motor? So I found a great big five hot worm hook and he got the thing done and it looked like a propeller. I had him hold his biggest knife on his knee straight up and I took the propeller and spun it on top like a helicopter blade. And I bored a hole through it, kept doing it until we got the hole, the diameter of the little shaft on the propeller. And we got it just right. And then we took a pair of pliers and we used pliers and force 
and we drove that big hook through the propeller right next to the center hole. We slid it on the shaft. We took the five-aught hook with pliers. We bent it, and we shoved it through the hole on the shaft to lock the propeller to the shaft. We got back in the boat. We got pushed off the bank. I turned the switch on low, and I kid you not, the motor propelled the boat with this hand-carved wooden propeller. So good that I kicked it up to medium, and it didn't even vibrate. It did. It was so good. I mean, you think about this thing spinning in circles, and if it's out of balance, it ought to vibrate. It didn't even vibrate. It was so good that we, that we actually, we did go straight back to the car. We didn't make any out-of-the-way turns, but we fished all the way back with that trolling motor. We put it on medium and low, and we fished all the way back, and that propeller, that homemade carved wooden propeller out of an oak log in the middle of a snowstorm got us all the way back. And, and I saved that propeller for many, you know, six, six or seven years. And then one day my children were out in the yard making this airplane that was swinging from the tree. And they found that propeller and they mounted it to their, to their airplane and they swung it and crashed into the tree and they broke it. But I'm telling you what, I, I saved that thing. I wish I still had it today. I would never in my life believe that a guy could carve a wooden prop for a trolling motor that would work. That's insane. It was. It was unbelievable. I mean, it's just crazy, but it happened. And I wish I had a GoPro because nobody would believe it. I can't blame them, but it worked great. We got all the way back on it. Yeah, it was amazing, really. (laughs) And I mean, I'm kind of mechanical and it it didn't vibrate, which just kills me. I would have thought it would thump and vibrate like crazy, but it didn't. And there's been so many things like that happen in my life with fishing that just they're great stories. They're fun and uh, unbelievable. That should be in some survival documentary or something. <laughs> it could have been. I don't know how long it really, it would have really taken a long, long time to find my way back to the truck. I'm not sure I could have done it, honestly, because, you know, the, you, you would just start following the bank line, I guess. But, you know, how lakes are, there's fingers and coves and, by the time you went all the way around, it would be miles and miles and miles. You could have froze. We could have. We could have. I mean, we were dressed pretty good for the weather, obviously. It was fun. We'll never forget that day. Never, ever. Well, so good. I need one more story. <laughs> well, oh, gosh. I'll tell you a quick one. This was not as long, but this was hilarious. I was up there. It was probably, I don't know, 15 degrees. I was crappie fishing. I had a lot of clothes on, bib overalls and stuff. and. I was in the front of my boat. I had a 10-foot crappie rod, and I don't know if you've ever done that, but you, you swing it out in front of the boat, and you drop it down into the bushes wherever. And if you get a little hit on the crappie, you lift it straight up, and you swing the rod high, and it, it's like a pendulum, and the crappie comes tilting right toward you, and you grab a line out of the air, and you take the crappie off the line, and you throw it in the bucket. So I'm on the front of the boat. No GoPro again. I, I wish I had a GoPro, but... This has never happened to me before. I'm hoping somebody hears your show has had it happen so they realize it's not just them. But I caught this crappie. And as I lift it up and swing it to get it to come back to me, something scares me right in my right ear. I mean, it, it, it almost touched my right ear. It came out of nowhere from behind me. And it was a great blue heron, if you know what that is. They're a really big bird. Oh, and they sit what? on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A great blue heron comes over my right shoulder, 
his wingtip almost hits my right ear, and he grabs that crappie in his beak while it's still on my hook. Um, before I could swing it to myself, he grabbed the crappie, and now he's in the air in front of my face about 15 feet away because he's at the end of the rod. He's got the line pulled out. He's backpedaling with his wings, back trying to back up in the air with the crappie in his mouth, pulling it, trying to get it off of my rod. And I'm standing there. I feel like an idiot because I'm looking around. I can't believe this happening. And I'm hoping somebody's watching, but there is nobody. And I'm thinking, I've got, I've got to get a picture of this. But my phone is way down inside my bibs. And I'm left-handed, and I'm holding the rod with my left hand. He held that crappie in his mouth and pulled and backpedaled with his wings long enough for me to reach into my bibs with my opposite hand, get my cell phone out, turn it on, hold it up, and click the button. And I'm a spastic with my right hand. I was able to click the button and get a picture of this crappie right there in front of the boat. He'd let go of the crappie, and he was right there. And I got that picture. And that <laughs> that's just crazy. I mean, that's another one. She says, don't tell anybody. They'll never believe this. But it happened. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So you got played by a blue heron. I did. And then afterwards, he went up. He just flew right up on the bank in front of me and looked at me, you know, like, no big deal. He, he, I don't know if he'd stolen crappie from guys before. I've never heard of it, but he acted like he'd done it before because he knew what he was doing. <laughs> right out of the air, right off my line, man. He comes over my shoulder, grabs that crappie, and sits there in the air backpedaling trying to rip it off my hook. Have you ever heard of poncho of a seal? I don't know if I have or not. It seems like it rings a bell. We had another guy who was one of poncho's victims. <laughs> when he was on his way back and he ate some tuna in his cooler, uh-huh. <laughs> Poncho hopped into his boat while he was moving, opened the ice box and took a fish and hopped back in the water. That's exactly what it's like. I'm sure Poncho's done it before, too. <laughs> yeah. Poncho's a big, fat seal. I'll bet he is. He gets plenty to eat. Oh, man. Do you have any advice for me as a young fisherman? Well, I've given you a little bit throughout the thing. I would add that what a young fisherman needs to do, number one, is spend as much time on the water as you possibly can. You watch TV, you read books, you read magazines, you watch videos, but you get out there on that water every chance you can. And while you're out there, you pick a technique, whether it's a crankbait, a popper, a swim bait, a fluke. You look at all the techniques that you've read about and you've watched the pros do, and you pick each one apart. And you go out there and you do it until you learn to do it and you do it until you feel confident that if the bite is a fluke if the bite is a carolina rig if the bite is a popper whatever the bite might be that day you have done it and you have perfected it to where you feel confident you can do it i can't tell you how many kids i've had tell me well i can fish a plastic worm but i can't fish a jig or i can fish a buzz bait but I don't have any confidence in a walking topwater bait. Whatever it is that you don't have confidence in, you need to develop the confidence because fishing is so, it's so sporadic and what they want, when they want it, how they want it. The more tools you have in your toolbox, the more likely you are to be able to fix the problem and catch the fish. A lot of time on the water and a lot of different techniques and pay attention to every little detail. Learn to match your rods to your line, 
to your bait, learn to sharpen your hooks, learn to check your knots, learn to check your line, learn to check your guides, learn to maintain your equipment, whether it's your boat, your lures, your rods. You know, it doesn't hurt every once in a while to wax your rod, clean it up. Definitely, you need to oil your reel on a regular basis. You need to maintain that reel. It works hard. You need to take care of it. Like, All those little things. I know Lou's makes some reel conditioning products, like those, those kinds of stuff. Yep. Um, Lucas Oil makes some. Lou's makes some. Dye will make some. I think most of the companies out there that are, are you know, big into fishing have some line of lubricants and things for the reels. The main thing is that you just oil the parts that need oiled, keep the reel clean. When you get done at the end of the day, clean your stuff up. It's a lot more work, but in the long run, your equipment will last longer for you and save you money and work when you need it to work. If you see something that isn't quite right, don't wait until it's all the way destroyed to fix it. Fix it right then. Figure out what it needs to be corrected and correct it. Don't wait because when it will go out is in the middle of the tournament or in the middle of your fun day and now it's not working and now you can't use it. So don't, don't wait. Fix problems as they arise. Don't put off to the end. Do it immediately and get it fixed. Is WD-40 also good? You know, it's not the best. It's good for some things, but it can destroy different things in a reel. In the old days, everybody just had like a, I mean, I'm going way back now. They either had a 5500C or a die with 2A. Most guys that weren't hardcore had a Zebco 33 or a Johnson Century. And uh, there was a lot of WD-40 used back in the old days. But it can be hard on some rubber seals and things and not good for certain things. So you're better off with a good silicone oil, a light, lightweight oil, not a heavy oil, something that's not going to collect dirt, but it's going to lubricate and, and be a light oil. Time for some rapid-fire questions. We should be quick. Okay. Braid, mono, or fluorocarbon? I'll go fluorocarbon most of the time. Biggest fish you ever caught? Biggest fish I ever caught? Probably about a 70-pound catfish in the middle of a bass tournament. How did you catch that? <laughs> you know how you wanted to bounce off stumps while ago? I was bouncing a square bill off a stump, and a catfish ate it. And uh, I had no idea how big it was until about a minute or two after the fight began. And because we were really catching the fish that day, and it happened to be the only crankbait I had left in that particular color and that size, I didn't just want to break off the catfish. And, and it, you know, so, so I had to fight this catfish with a trolling motor and chase it out into deep water and follow it and follow it and follow it and chase it and fight it. And I had it on 12-pound fluorocarbon line. And I basically just kept fighting this catfish until I could get it up to the boat and then my partner took some needle nose and grabbed the hook and ripped it out. And then I replaced the hook and we went back to our tournament fishing. But I really didn't want to catch it, but I had to get my lure back. And it, it wasted a little bit of time, too, because it took quite a while to get it to the boat. Yeah, I bet so. Favorite place to fish? Well, I'll tell you, I'm getting older now. You know, I drive a lot with the college team. We, we probably drive 14,000 miles per year. And we're in a motel about 85 nights per year. So when I get to fish anymore, I don't want to go very far. And I don't want to stay in a motel because that's what I do all year long with the kids. So right now, my favorite place to fish is as close to home as I can get. And wherever the best bite is close by, where I can go catch fish and get back home and relax. Because we travel so much with them, 
that, that I don't do a lot of traveling anymore like I used to. When I traveled a lot, at that time, Kentucky Lake was one of my favorite places. Chickamauga is a, is a really great place to catch some big fish. Favorite fish to eat? That's a toss-up. You know, we had a tournament on the St. Lawrence River this year a few months ago, and one of the guys wow. works on a guide boat in Alaska, and he brought halibut. And I had never really had halibut, but it's pretty good. I would say I can't boil it down to one. I would say I love halibut. I just love fresh salmon. And I don't know if you can beat bluegill. It's, it's really sweet and good and has great texture. So those are probably my three favorites. Crappies, crappie's good, but I'd take bluegill over crappie. And, and I love salmon. So they're all very, very good. You fished the St. Lawrence River in a tournament? My college team did. We, we travel all over. We've been to the St. Wow. Lawrence River. We've been there twice in the last couple of years. That's one place I've always wanted to fish, the St. Lawrence River. Well, let me, let me tell you a quick story about that. You'll love this. We went two years ago, and I think there was 100 and, 100 and some teams up there. And one of my teams weighed in really, really early, and he had 23 pounds. Five smallmouth weighed 23 pounds. And I thought we were doing pretty good. And by the end of the day, his 23-pound bag of smallmouth was in 30th place. And one of my other guys had 20 pounds, three ounces, and he was in 80th place. And on that particular day, the first day of the tournament, of all hundred and some boats, if you did the math and divided it out, the pounds of fish caught by the number of boats on the water, the average bag of fish weighed 20 pounds. Well, that means everybody caught well over 20 and not too far under 20. I mean, you know, it averages out. Most of the bags were between, between 17 and 24 pounds. Everybody caught fish and everybody caught big fish. And they were almost all smallmouth. And, and right now, the St. Lawrence River is, is one of the most incredible fisheries on earth. It's, it's getting pounded really hard, though. It's drawn a lot of tournament traffic. And that does, it does change things. It, it really does. Yeah. Favorite lure to fish with? Whatever the fish are biting on that day. Uh, I, love, I love them all. That's just such a tough question. You know, I love a little, little quarter-ounce jig a lot. I love a shaky head. I love the old big O. I still catch fish on a big O a lot. And Rapala made a lure. They still do. They only have it in three colors now. But Rapala made a lure called the Fat Wrap, FR5CW, a crawdad-colored fat wrap. And uh, I probably in my life have caught more fish on that big O and that fat wrap. Well, I don't know. I've caught a lot on shaky head too, but I don't have a favorite. I love them all. And, and the one that is getting the bites is the one I love the most that day. All right. Time for our last question. If right. you could go anywhere in the world, what would your dream catch be? Oh, I, you know, I knew you were going to ask that question. I thought about it. I thought about it. I thought about it. And, and I guess a lot of people have a bucket list and somewhere to go and have a dream catch. But I really, I really don't. I, I, I don't really desire to go deep sea fishing and catch fish like that. And I guess if I had to come up with something, it would probably be to go somewhere like the St. Lawrence and fish and maybe catch a seven plus smallmouth. That would be a blast. That's something I've never done. And to catch a giant smallmouth would be, would be pretty special. That'd be fun. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. I had a great time. It was a lot of fun. Keep up the good work. And if I can ever do anything to help out, just let me know. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Catching Knowledge. 
make sure to subscribe, leave a review, or write a rating. Or share it. That would be great, too. Thanks to JT for connecting me with John. He was a very good interview. Thank you, JT. And I'd also like to say thank you to John for doing the interview. That was a really good interview. I learned more than I thought I could in an hour. See you next time on Catching Knowledge.